It's lunchtime on March 22, 1990, in the port of Valdez, Alaska. Almost exactly one year since the supertanker Exxon Valdez ran aground and spilled tens of millions of gallons of oil into the waters of Prince William Sound. It's quiet in Valdez, and snow lies thick on the ground. A lone car drives slowly through the town's broad streets. In the passenger seat is a man in his mid-thirties, a sailor named Ron, who's come to town with a few hours to kill before he has to be back on his ship. So Ron's decided to hitch a ride from a friend to a local bar for a drink. Ron's friend turns off the main road and pulls up in the parking lot of a bar, the Pipeline Club, its sign promising steak, seafood, and cocktails. As Ron steps out of the car, he waves goodbye to his friend and then heads into the bar. A warm fog of beer, sweat, and cigarette smoke welcomes him. The Pipeline Club is a long and narrow dive bar with low ceilings and sticky floors. It's busy, and to reach the bar, Ron picks his way through tables of people eating lunch and squeezes past an old man reading a newspaper by the light of an ancient jukebox. Finally, Ron reaches a free bar stool, and that's when the bartender spots him. Hey, Ron, when would you get in? This morning. Rough trip across the Gulf, I tell you. The verdict come in yet? Ron nods at the television above the bar. The jury in the trial of Joe Hazelwood, the captain of the Exxon Valdez, is expected to deliver its verdict any moment. Nah, not yet. Should be soon, though. What can I get for you? How about a Hazelwood iced tea? The bartender smirks at Ron's joke. Iced tea is what the Exxon Valdez captain claimed he was drinking in town before the accident. Other witnesses suggested it was something stronger. Bonk on the rocks, it is. But as the barman pours the drink, a news flash appears on the television behind him. Oh, hey, 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 this is the verdict. Turn it up. Bartender sets aside the vodka bottle and fiddles with the volume knob of the television. Here is Connie Chung. The hum of conversation that in the bar quietens as people listen in. In the trial of Joseph Hazelwood, the captain of the tanker Exxon Valdez, he has been found not guilty of one felony count of criminal mischief. There are gasps of surprise in the pipeline club, but Ron is delighted for his fellow sailor. He smiles as the anchor continues. He has been now found not guilty on two misdemeanors counts, but guilty of one misdemeanor account of negligent discharge of oil. He only faces six months and a $1,000 fine. The tanker Exxon Valdez went aground just one year ago Sunday, causing the nation's worst oil spill. There's a rush of chatter in the bar as everyone shares their delight or dismay at the verdict. Ron lifts his drink to the bartender. Well, here's to Joe. Ron downs the vodka, but the bartender seems torn. Yeah, I don't know. A thousand bucks? What's that per gallon of oil? Fractions of a penny. Oh, come on, man. They tried to make him a scapegoat. You know it was an accident. Uh, look, I like Joe, and he was a good guy. It seems to me he was the captain of that ship, the man responsible. <laughs> Everyone knows what the spill did to this place. A thousand bucks, it's... That's uh, kind of a joke. I don't know. He's already lost his job, his career, his reputation. That's worth a lot more than a thousand bucks. What good is it going to do anyone if he rots in jail? I tell you, if you want to blame someone, you should blame the company. <laughs> oh, I do, believe me. But if Joe can get off this easy, then I'll bet good money that Exxon walks away scot-free. 
Captain Joe Hazelwood was cleared of second-degree criminal mischief, of operating a watercraft while drunk, and of reckless endangerment. He was found guilty only of the misdemeanor of negligently discharging oil. Joe received a fine and was sentenced to a thousand hours of community service. But Joe Hazelwood's trial wouldn't be the last time the events of March 24, 1989 would be examined in court. Joe's employer, Exxon, still faced the threat of legal action for its role in the disaster. And in the wake of Joe's verdict, members of the local fishing community of Prince William Sound would do everything in their power to seek justice and make Exxon pay. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. From Wondery, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is Business Movers. At the beginning of the 1990s, Exxon was looking to the future. The company hoped to put the Alaskan oil spill behind it. They'd already funded a hugely expensive cleanup operation in the summer of 1989, but that project was winding down. In October of 1991, the company agreed to a legal settlement with the U.S. government over the Exxon Valdez disaster. In the wake of the oil spill, a new chapter in the long history of the company was about to begin. CEO Larry Rawl was nearing retirement, and everyone knew who his replacement would be, the president of the company, Lee Raymond. Like many at the top of Exxon, Lee had worked for the company for decades. He was intelligent, with a PhD in chemical engineering, and he had a quiet determination which had seen him quickly ascend the corporate ladder. In the early 90s, it was clear that Lee was the heir apparent at Exxon, and he had big plans to change the way the old company was run. He hoped his reforms would mean a disaster like the Exxon Valdez could never happen again. But however much Lee and others at Exxon wanted to put the spill behind them, many in Alaska couldn't move on so easily. Their lives and businesses were still scarred by the accident, and they wanted justice. 32,000 of them joined together to take on the oil giant in court with a class-action lawsuit. There were cannery workers and seafood brokers, fishermen who had seen their waters polluted, and Alaskan natives whose ancient lands had been left contaminated. While Lee Raymond was trying to reshape Exxon for the future, this group of determined Alaskans tried their best to stop the company from escaping its past. 
This is the final episode in our four-part series on the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Blame game. It's fall 1990 in a conference room at Exxon's skyscraper headquarters in New York City. The top executives from Exxon USA, the company's American subsidiary, have just finished a budget presentation to company president Lee Raymond and his boss, Exxon CEO Larry Rawl. The executives from Exxon USA are all smiles and jokes, but their bosses, Lee and Larry, are not so jovial. Lee, in particular, was horrified by the Exxon Valdez oil spill. It's not so much the environmental impact that bothered him, but what the accident revealed about the company. Since the oil tanker ran aground, Lee has led Exxon's internal investigation into the spill, and he's not happy with what he's found. Lee and Larry share a quick and solemn glance. Then Larry nods and watches as Lee stands and takes the floor. Lee starts by addressing Bill Stevens, the bald and bespectacled head of Exxon USA. Well, Bill, thank you for that report. It seems very thorough. What I want to discuss, though, is your safety record. Hearing this, Bill pales slightly. Well, of course, Lee. Let's go down the list, shall we? First, there's the Valdez, which we all know about. But then there's the situation in Louisiana. And then Arthur Kill. That was a hell of a way to start the holidays. On Christmas Eve, 1989, nine months after the Exxon Valdez ran aground, a massive explosion ripped through an Exxon refinery in Louisiana. Two workers were killed, and it took 15 hours to extinguish the blaze. Just a week later, another incident saw 500,000 gallons of petroleum leak into the waters of Arthur Kill, the narrow strait between Staten Island and New Jersey. And there's no escaping the fact that all three of these things occurred on your watch, Bill. Yes, it's been a difficult time. That's one way of putting it. We spent millions of dollars in Alaska trying to convince the public that we can be trusted again. And no sooner do we finish that cleanup than we have other disasters to deal with. Well, Lee, if I can respond, you'll get a chance, Bill. But right now, I want to read to you from the report on the explosion in Louisiana. Lee picks through the papers in front of him the report commissioned by the company into the refinery accident. He reads out highlighted sections. The incidence of improperly installed material was higher in Exxon USA than was in some of the foreign operations. Lee flips to another highlighted section. Shutoff procedures in the refinery did not follow company standards, and when asked, employees replied, well, that's the way we do it in Baton Rouge. Lee tosses the report on the table. Why was the plant allowed to follow its own practices, Bill? Uh, well, Lee, I, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to look into it. Two people died, Bill, and we and we will get to the bottom of it, Lee. Really, I mean, clearly that should not have happened, and our safety record has not met the standards that I expect, that I know you expect. We've fallen below the industry average, and I recognize that, but we are making great strides. I promise. Next year, we hope to get above that average, Bill. That's ridiculous. Above average. You're talking about above average. This is Exxon. You can only have one objective here, and that is to be the best. Well, uh, yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, for the record, I, I do feel things are improving. You feel things are improving. Well, guess what? We don't run this company on emotions. We run it on science and principles. We are going to be making some changes at Exxon USA. Larry and I are in agreement. Nothing like this, or Arthur Kill, or God help us, the Valdez, can ever happen again. The room is quiet for a moment. And then Larry Rawl, Exxon's CEO, stands and breaks his silence. And 
until you guys get your head screwed on right, I don't want to hear from any of you. All right? This meeting's over. As Larry storms out of the room, Lee turns to the other men left behind. Bill Stevens shakes his head. Lee, I am sorry. I don't want to hear it, Bill. There's something fundamentally broken around here. We need to fix it. As Lee Raymond prepared to succeed Larry Rawls as CEO of Exxon, he was determined to remake the oil company as he saw fit for the new decade. Exxon was an old company. Its roots stretch back more than a century to the oil empire built by John D. Rockefeller, perhaps the wealthiest American of all time. In that long history, a tangled and bloated bureaucracy had developed at the firm, one that often suffocated decision-making under the weight of endless committees and subcommittees. This dysfunctional bureaucracy had been on full display throughout the Exxon Valdez crisis. Lee recognized that the oil spill and the subsequent accidents in Louisiana and the Northeast were bad for business. But in the aftermath of these crises, he also saw an opportunity to push for change and fast, to break through those layers of bureaucracy and shake up an organization that had become dangerously complacent. As Lee Raymond saw it, the root causes of the Exxon Valdez disaster were human error and poor management of risk. Potential threats and hazards in the company's operations weren't identified or controlled well enough. Lee became obsessed with changing that. Zero defects and zero mistakes. That was Lee's aim for Exxon. He wouldn't be satisfied with a bare minimum or industry averages. Just barely meeting legal requirements or paying lip service to regulations had been part of the problem. And Lee wanted Exxon to go further. He wanted to make Exxon the most rule-based, automated, idiot-proof company in the world. And that meant changing the company's procedures, its structures, and most importantly, its culture. In 1992, Lee introduced the Operations Integrity Management System. It was a comprehensive new approach to company operations based on annual safety audits, employee performance reviews, and statistical analysis of even the smallest workplace injury or accident, from bee stings to paper cuts. Lee rolled out the system across the business in every subsidiary and in every part of the world where Exxon operated. But Lee did more than just change the company's operational techniques. He also overhauled Exxon's corporate structure as well. He recruited a new vice president for environment and safety, an executive who reported directly to Lee. And he reorganized the oil firm's employees with a new category for jobs where safety was most critical. Oil tanker crews, truck drivers, and operators of heavy equipment were all reclassified as designated safety positions. Employees in these roles faced strict new rules on drug and alcohol use. And in the future, any Exxon employee entering a drug or alcohol rehabilitation program would be barred from designated safety positions. They wouldn't be fired, but they wouldn't be allowed to put others at risk either. These rules were designed to prevent employees who struggled with addiction men like Captain Joe Hazelwood, from ever putting others in danger. It became known as the Raymond Rule. And it wasn't just the truck drivers and tanker captains who were subject to Lee's new approach. To build support at Exxon for these strict measures, Lee also included the top 300 executives at the company in the designated safety positions category. Each one of them were subject to the same drug and alcohol testing regime as other critical employees. But Lee knew he had to go further. The Raymond Rule and other changes at Exxon were part of a bigger project for Lee, something more fundamental, 
a revolution in corporate culture to make safety, discipline, and accountability the company's priorities. Lee was pitiless in rooting out managers who cut corners. He earned the nickname Iron Ass for his tendency to badger staffers who he felt were falling short. And to encourage whistleblowing, Lee established an anonymous hotline where employees could report safety breaches or disciplinary problems, even and especially if they were committed by their bosses. Above all, Lee wanted safety embedded into the rhythms of a normal working day at Exxon. At the start of every meeting, a randomly chosen employee would be asked to give what was called a safety minute, a brief presentation on one aspect of ongoing safety protocols. It could be a discussion of fire escapes, the safest way to use a coffee machine, or even the dangers of getting too much sun on vacation. There were no exceptions. Even if a team had worked together for years in the same office and building, they were expected to hold a safety minute before any meeting could begin. This newfound devotion to safety struck some outsiders as an almost cult-like obsession. But Lee had learned a lesson from the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Disasters may be unlikely, but the damage they cause is colossal. And it's worth going to almost any length to prevent them. Under Lee's leadership, Exxon's unofficial internal motto became, Nobody gets hurt. But for the people of Alaska, that sentiment was too little too late. In 1993, Lee Raymond succeeded Larry Rawl as Exxon's CEO. Early that same year, a conference took place in Anchorage, Alaska. Scientists and activists gathered with government officials and representatives from the oil industry to hear evidence about the lingering effects of the oil spill almost four years after the Exxon Valdez ran aground. The evidence presented painted a grim picture of poisons still trapped in the environment, which were wreaking havoc on the fragile ecosystem of Prince William Sound. Once thriving populations of porpoises and whales were nowhere to be found, and the skies were strangely empty of birds. For fishermen and Alaska natives who relied on the waters for their way of life, there was a growing toll of debt, depression, and despair. Their collective hopes were pinned on a lawsuit being levied against Exxon. Tens of thousands of Alaskans had banded together to take on the mighty oil company in a class-action lawsuit. Together, they sought billions of dollars in damages. Some companies would have tried to settle and avoid an expensive legal battle, but not Exxon. Its new CEO, Lee Raymond, thought the company had fulfilled its obligations. Exxon had already spent billions of dollars dealing with the oil spill, and in Lee's mind, the company had learned its lesson and was changing the way it did business, putting safety at the heart of its operations. Lee felt that Exxon was now being persecuted. So rather than seeking a settlement, he decided to fight. The trial began in Anchorage, Alaska in May 1994. At first, the trial would decide whether Exxon had been reckless or just negligent in causing the Exxon Valdez oil tanker to run aground. If the company was found guilty of recklessness, the court would move on to hearings which would decide the punishment. After weeks of competing testimony, on the morning of June 13, 1994, the jury of nine women and three men returned its first verdict, determining that Exxon was reckless for allowing Joe Hazelwood a man with a known history of alcohol abuse, to captain an oil tanker. The courtroom erupted as the victors cheered and hugged one another. On the plaza outside the building, the plaintiff's chief lawyer, Brian O'Neill, crowed to the press, We want to make the exons of the world aware that they are responsible, the same way you and I are responsible. But the trial was not over yet. 
Soon the judge, lawyers, and jurors would return to the courtroom to decide how much Exxon would have to pay. Lee had avoided giving evidence in the case so far, but he still believed that Exxon was being treated unfairly. With the prospect of a multi-billion dollar judgment now hanging over his company, Lee realized he could no longer stay above the fray. When the case returned to court, Lee Raymond would decide to take the stand and fight for Exxon. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. It's August 25, 1994, in a federal courthouse in the city of Anchorage, Alaska. The case brought against Exxon by the Alaskan fishermen, natives, and landowners has reached a critical stage. The jury must now decide whether Exxon will have to pay punitive damages for the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Lee Raymond shifts in his seat in the witness box. As the oil company's CEO, he's just given evidence for the defense. Now it's the turn of the plaintiff's lawyer. Brian O'Neill to cross-examine him. Lee knows the 37-year-old Brian is one of the country's top environmental lawyers. So as Brian begins his questioning, Lee braces for a tough encounter. Mr. Raymond, your lawyer said that we accept the jury's verdict. Were you here in court for that? Yes, I was. Was your company reckless? The jury, I believe, Mr. O'Neill has concluded that. Well, that's a very different thing, wouldn't you agree? To say, yes, we were reckless, or I understand that that's what the jury found. Those are two different things, aren't they? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not sure I understand the question you're asking me. Well, can you answer this question? Was your company reckless, yes or no? I don't want to be argumentative, but I don't think in asking the question you can tell me how I have to answer. The facts are as we know. The jury concluded that Exxon was reckless. Now, I'm not arguing about that. I'm not looking back, and I'm not disputing it. Brian O'Neill moves back to his desk. He consults a piece of paper on the tabletop and then changes tack. Do you know any of the fishermen from Prince William Sound, Mr. Raymond? Uh, no, I do not. Do you know any of the fishermen from Upper Cook Inlet? No, I do not. Do you know any of the fishermen from Kodiak? No. Do you know any people that live in the native villages in Alaska? No, I do not. Do you know the names of any of them? You mean the native villages? No, sir, the people. Do you know the names of any fishermen? No. Natives? I wouldn't want to comment on that. 
Do you think it might be appropriate, uh, as a matter of contrition, to at least learn the names of some of the victims of the spill? Lee grits his teeth. This lawyer is beginning to get under his skin. Mr. O'Neill, my interpretation of your question was, do I personally know any of them? I could go back and memorize a whole list of names and look at who got payment and that type of thing. Oh, I wasn't concerned about the payment of money. I was concerned about whether you knew the names of these victims. To come up and say, Fred, John, Mary, Susan, I'm sorry about what my company did to you. Well, I am sorry. But they didn't know that because you haven't told them, have you? We've said that publicly, and I won't say an infinite number of times because that's an overstatement, but a very large number of times, including in that advertisement, right? Which you paid to have printed around the country. I believe I've already commented. The only way you can get a letter like that in a paper was to pay the advertising rate. Newspapers don't, I mean, I know it shocked all of us, but they don't publish things for free. There's a ripple of laughter in the court, but Brian O'Neill isn't smiling. Yes, Mr. Raymond, it was important to make sure that the apology got to all the Alaskan fishermen who lived in Detroit and Boston and New York and Washington, D.C. Brian O'Neill's sarcastic remark elicits protest from Exxon's lawyer, but he's made his point to the jury. The newspaper advertisement wasn't a genuine apology. It was a PR stunt by Exxon. And flustered, Lee takes a moment to sip from a glass of water sitting in front of him. Lee was expecting a tough encounter in court today, that's what he got. Lee Raymond was the final witness to appear. Not long after both sides made their closing arguments, the fisherman's lawyer, Brian O'Neill, characterized the oil giant as an industrial bully, more interested in maintaining its image than in cleaning up the spill. Given Exxon's vast wealth, the lawyer insisted that only a large and painful award worth billions of dollars would be a fitting punishment. Exxon's legal team, on the other hand, argued that the company had set an exemplary standard in its response to the spill and that no additional punitive damages were warranted above the $3.4 billion the oil firm had already spent making amends in Alaska. After these closing arguments, the jurors retired to consider how much Exxon would have to pay. Thirteen days of tense discussions followed, but finally, on September 16, 1994, the jury returned with a decision. Exxon was ordered to pay $5 billion, the largest punitive damages sum ever awarded by a court. The jury had spoken with a clear voice, but Lee Raymond had no intention of giving in or paying up without a fight. When word of the $5 billion fine reached the Alaskan fishing town of Cordova, there were celebrations and dancing in the street. Many of the town's inhabitants had been hit hard by the spill, and it wasn't just financial losses they suffered. The event was more damaging than that to the fishermen of Cordova. An entire way of life had been spoiled, and many feared it might never recover. But with the news of the stunning court victory over Exxon, many in Prince William Sound thought they had finally found justice. But if there were celebrations in Alaska, there was shock at Exxon's new company headquarters just outside Dallas, Texas. Lee immediately issued a statement to the press, calling the verdict totally unwarranted and unfair, and vowed that Exxon would appeal using every legal means available. Within a month, the oil company submitted its first post-trial motions to the federal district court in Alaska. In lengthy briefs, Exxon lawyers petitioned to have the jury's decision thrown out and the whole trial repeated. One by one, these motions were rejected by the court in Anchorage, but still Lee refused to pay. His tactic was to delay as long as possible. 
In June 1997, almost three years after the end of the court case in Alaska, and with the $5 billion fine still unpaid, Exxon formally appealed the decision in federal court. In the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, the company argued that the punitive damages awarded by the Alaskan jury were grossly excessive and should be reduced or dismissed entirely. Just as Lee hoped, the appeals process at the federal level would be slow. Indeed, much to the frustration of those waiting for their money in Alaska, the case would be tied up for more years to come. In the meantime, Lee had other more pressing concerns. He was pursuing the biggest shakeup that Exxon had seen in decades. In the mid-90s, Exxon was the largest privately owned international oil company in the world. But oil prices were at a 30-year low. To combat reduced revenues, Exxon's rivals were joining forces and consolidating, a direct threat to Exxon's reign as king of big oil. Lee Raymond wouldn't allow that. So he began thinking of a merger of his own. With the reforms he'd introduced following the Exxon Valdez oil spill now in place, Lee felt the company was well-positioned to make a strategic leap forward. A merger would not only secure Exxon's position in the industry, it would mean another reorganization and another opportunity for Lee to continue his transformation of the company. He declared that a merger would be the last brick in the wall of remaking Exxon. Briefly, he considered purchasing the chemical manufacturer DuPont, but his overtures were rejected, so Lee turned his attention to a rival oil and gas company, Mobil. Lee saw that the two companies complemented each other. Exxon's oil reserves were mostly in mature fields in North America and Europe. Mobil, on the other hand, owned large holdings in Africa and Asia, where promising new opportunities were emerging. In 1998, Lee began negotiations with his counterparts at Mobil. Talks progressed quickly, and on December 1st, the announcement was made. Exxon Corporation was buying Mobil for a price of $75.3 billion dollars. The merger was the most expensive in history, and the new company it formed, ExxonMobil, would be the largest corporation of any kind headquartered in the United States. The Goliath, being fought by the people of Prince William Sound, had just grown that much bigger. And though the oil giant had a new name, what the company did to lands and livelihoods in Alaska had not been forgotten. But by now, the celebrations which had greeted the initial court verdict has long since faded. A grim realization had set in that Lee and ExxonMobil had no intention of paying the $5 billion fine. Lee's strategy was to delay and contest proceedings at every single stage, and his plan was working. As the Alaskan plaintiffs awaited a ruling from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, the Supreme Court signaled that it would take the side of Exxon in the dispute. In judgments unrelated to the oil company, the court suggested that it would soon seek to cap what punitive damages could be awarded by American courts. The reasoning was that if punitive damages were to act as a deterrent, they had to be predictable, and that on too many occasions, that simply hadn't been the case. This gave Lee hope that Exxon could escape the fine handed down in 1994. As he put it, time is on our side. To the extent we can draw it out, the legal system is gradually going to close down on punitive damages. And just as Lee hoped, the Ninth Circuit took years to come to a decision. The case was batted back and forth between the Ninth Circuit and the original lower court. But finally, in 2006, a three-judge panel on the Ninth Circuit issued its ruling. The punitive damages awarded more than a decade earlier were slashed in half from $5 billion to 2.5. 
It was a bitter blow for the fishermen, natives, and landowners in Alaska. But even this reduced fine was not acceptable to ExxonMobil. So the company appealed once again. And eventually their case would wind its way through the legal system all the way to the top. In the end, the fate of ExxonMobil would be decided by the United States Supreme Court. Whether you're shipping 100 packages a month or thousands, ShipStation lets you automate routine shipping tasks and easily handle returns. Manage orders, print labels, compare rates, optimize every shipment, and automate delivery notifications with ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard. Plus, you can access industry-leading discounted rates from USPS, UPS, DHL, and Global Post, with discounts up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation, and 98% of companies that stick with ShipStation for a year become customers for life. Optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Use promo code WONDERY today at ShipStation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com promo code WONDERY. It's the morning of June 25, 2008, in a mansion in Preston Hollow, one of the most prestigious neighborhoods in Dallas, Texas. 69-year-old Lee Raymond strides restlessly through the marble halls. Today is a big day for Lee. The Supreme Court is due to issue its verdict on the Exxon Valdez case. It will decide once and for all how much the oil company will have to pay in punitive damages. And while he waits for the news, Lee is trying to busy himself with another project. He reaches the door to his library and heads inside. On the table at the center of the grand wood-paneled room, his staff has laid out blueprints just arrived from the architect. Plans for an even bigger mansion that Lee is planning to build in a town northwest of Dallas. Glistening on a coaster beside the blueprints is Lee's favorite drink, a glass of milk with popcorn floating on top. As he takes a sip of the strange beverage, he inspects the plans, It will be a new home for a new stage of life. At the end of 2005, Lee retired as CEO of Exxon. During his 12 years at the helm, the value of the firm rose from 80 to $360 billion. In his last year at the company, Exxon made a profit of more than $36 billion. Now Lee is enjoying one of the largest retirement packages ever awarded. As Lee examines the plans for his new mansion, the telephone in the corner of the room rings. Lee sits down his milk and hurries across the room. Yeah, this is Lee. Good morning, sir. Uh, you at the court? Yes, sir. The ruling's just been released. And? What? Did we win? They set damages at $507.5 million. Congratulations, sir. Lee clenches his fist. This is a triumph. The award is just 10% of the original judgment made back in 1994. $500 million is nothing to ExxonMobil. Just a few days worth of profit. Well, what was the split? Five to three, sir. Well, we weren't going to get them all. Justice Alito sent it out. Yeah, well, he's got Exxon stock, doesn't he? Needs to avoid any suggestion of bias, I suppose. Well, here's the majority opinion, sir. The punitive damages award against Exxon was excessive. In the circumstances of this case, the award should be limited to an amount equal to compensatory damages. Ah, well, that is fantastic. A total vindication, I tell you. I'll send you over the full text right away. 
I'd appreciate that. And congratulations again, sir. Well, thank you very much for the call. <laughs> You've made my day. 20 years after the Exxon Valdez spill, the oil company finally paid the punitive damages. But it was a bitter day for many in Alaska. The largest individual payouts would be around $100,000, far less than the plaintiffs had once been promised. Some observers rightly noted that the damages were only slightly more than Lee Raymond's retirement package. Within two days of the Supreme Court's ruling, ExxonMobil's total stock value jumped by $23 billion. The court's decision would later be called by many one of the worst it ever made. But the controversial ruling did not close the door on all of Exxon's legal troubles. In fact, one significant issue was still unresolved. When Exxon settled its lawsuits with state and federal authorities back in 1991, the firm agreed to pay $1 billion over 10 years to fund restoration projects in the areas affected by the spill. But there was a special reopener clause in the deal. If the long-term environmental damage proved greater than expected at the time of the ruling, the local court in Anchorage could re-examine the case. In 2014, an environmental survey was conducted in Prince William Sound. A quarter of a century had passed since the Exxon Valdez had run aground there, and much of the damage caused by the oil had been undone by time. But there were scars in Alaska that couldn't heal. The disaster killed an estimated 250,000 seabirds, 3,000 otters, 250 bald eagles, and 22 killer whales. Even after more than two decades, oil was found lingering on at least two miles ashore, and fish populations still hadn't fully recovered. But in spite of all this, in October 2015, a judge in Anchorage announced that the Exxon Valdez case would not be reopened. ExxonMobil wouldn't be asked to pay a penny more. And with that decision, the legal battle over the spill was officially over. ExxonMobil may have escaped greater financial punishment and legal jeopardy, but the firm struggled to restore its reputation. The stain of the Exxon Valdez clung to the company as stubbornly as oil to an Alaskan beach. In the eyes of many, the company's inadequate safety regulations and poor contingency planning were responsible for the disaster. But what happened next? The company's reaction to the spill was not inevitable. With the appropriate response, Exxon could have salvaged its reputation in the aftermath of the accident. But instead, Exxon became a textbook example of what not to do in a corporate crisis. The company failed to clearly take responsibility. It also failed to establish a decisive plan of action. And crucially, it failed to communicate with the public. For weeks after the oil tanker ran aground, Exxon's top executives refused to go to Alaska or talk to the press. To many, they seemed arrogant and unconcerned by the disaster. Exxon did make public apologies, but their words of regret seemed hollow when elsewhere the company was minimizing the damage of the spill or simply blaming others. Because of this, the billions Exxon spent on the cleanup did little to soften their image. The perception took hold that the company simply did not care. But in spite of the damage done to its reputation, Exxon's balance sheet and its long-term plans seemed barely buffeted by the disaster in Prince William Sound. The firm continued to make profits of tens of billions of dollars every year. Still, the disaster did profoundly change Exxon. In its aftermath, Lee Raymond instituted wide-ranging reforms aimed at ensuring that nothing like the Exxon Valdez oil spill could ever happen again. The wider oil industry was forced to change as well. In the immediate wake of the spill, the U.S. Congress passed the Oil Pollution Act of 1990. 
This law increased penalties for companies responsible for oil spills and required that all oil tankers operating in United States waters have a double hull to protect their cargo, something Exxon had not done with the Valdez. But questions remained over whether the industry had truly learned its lesson. Oil companies were accused of finding ways around regulations many thought didn't do enough to prevent another catastrophe. And indeed, in April 2010, an explosion on the Deepwater Horizon oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico caused the deaths of 11 workers and saw more than 200 million gallons of oil pour into the sea. The rig didn't belong to ExxonMobil, but rather its rivals at BP. But the failures that led to the Alaskan oil spill in 1989 were seen once again. Corporate complacency, inadequate safety protocols, and an obsession with cost-cutting. By 2018, the cost to BP as a result of the Deepwater Horizon spill had reached $65 billion. But as was the case in Alaska almost 30 years prior, it was the environment and the surrounding communities that were left counting an even greater cost. A toll measured not in dollars or cents or gallons of oil, but in habitats spoiled, lives ruined, and in promises unmet. On the next episode of Business Movers, Rick Steiner, one of the world's leading marine conservation scientists and a man who was on the ground in Valdez fighting the spill, talks about the complicated legacy the disaster leaves behind and what lessons can be learned. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Business Movers ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. If you'd like to learn more about Exxon and the Exxon Valdez oil spill, we recommend In the Wake of the Exxon Valdez by Art Davidson and Private Empire, ExxonMobil and American Power by Steve Call. This episode contains reenactments and dramatized details. And while in most cases we can't know exactly what we've said, all our dramatizations are based on historical research. Business Movers is hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham, for Airship. Audio editing and sound design by Molly Bach. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by William Simpson. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Aaron O'Flaherty, Jenny Lauer-Beckman, and Marsha Louie for Wondering. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This mother lied like a liar like a liar and if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal or you love to hop in the wayback machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes you should tune in to our podcast morbid follow morbid on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen to episodes early and ad free by joining wondery plus in the wondery app or on apple podcasts